Welcome to CV Talks, a podcast from Silvercloud by Amwell, a leading digital mental health platform specializing in the delivery of evidence-based care. I'm Dr. Daniel Duffy. I'm a digital health scientist, and in this series, I explore the science of digital mental health with practitioners and mental health advocates. In today's episode, my guest is Dr. Hussein Al-Zubaidi. Hussein is a GP who is a strong advocate of how movement can help to support someone's physical and mental health. He trains as a long-distance triathlete and volunteers for the charity Run Talk Run, which encourages participants to socialise and get connected with the community whilst going for a walk or jog with others. Very nice to meet you, Hussein. Great to have you on the podcast, especially I've been doing a little bit of, uh, I suppose, online creeping on your profile for the last few days. And because, of course, I always like to know, you know, the background of people who are coming on. And the first thing that struck me, especially watching other interviews, is that, you know, uh, you're a lifestyle GP. And I suppose that sounds a little bit different from your day-to-day physician. So, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background, but, you know, talking about that, could you tell me a little bit more about the distinction between my typical GP that I visit down the road versus a lifestyle GP? and what your day-to-day practice looks like in comparison to a typical GP. And of course, I'd love to hear about your background and how you got to this point. Yeah, of course. So uh, a lifestyle GP is a GP with a focus and extra experience in lifestyle medicine, which is essentially the practice of of trying to get the most out of your health from the things you do day-to-day, whether that be physical activity, it could be nutrition, could be avoidance of harmful substances like smoking, alcohol, and support in how to do that. It's about connecting with nature and with those around you. So it's, it's what I think is the core of what medicine should be, but sometimes Western medicine can have a bit of a focus on pharmaceuticals, which of course have their place and have, have benefited us in, in many ways, but we shouldn't forget what the core of good care should be which in my view is lifestyle medicine. So you, you'll see um, this term being used more and more as we have a growing number of physicians across the UK from different walks of life, whether they be GPs or even orthopedic surgeons, mm-hmm. taking on that sort of lifestyle tag. And there is a, um, there's the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and also the Royal College of GPs have a lifestyle and physical activity um, sort of initiative as we try to bring back kind of what sort of the core roots of what good health can be. You know, that does definitely create a distinction from, I guess, I'm going to say my typical GP down the road uh, towards what you're saying. So how did you get to that point? Was it was there a moment where you realized that I want to focus on this? Yeah. So like, uh, firstly, many people, their typical GP may be a lifestyle GP. They just don't know about it. Um, and very much you're still going to be offered the same treatments, but maybe with, with a focus and with a sort of a certain zeal or passion to try to encourage you to make sort of changes in your own life to support your health. Now, how did I come about it? Well, in my mid-20s, I was sort of significantly overweight. Mm-hmm. I was about 94 kilos, pretty burnt out at work, definitely overworking, not looking after my own health. And sort of some random blood tests that had to be done just as part of being a healthcare professional. You have to get certain sets of blood tests done every now and again. It found that my liver function test was deranged. Okay. And so they did a uh, an ultrasound scan of my liver, like a jelly scan. And that picked up that I had fatty liver disease. Oh, wow. And that was kind of the wake-up call that I needed that, you know, the lifestyle that I was leading of, you know, 
burning the candle at both ends, overworking, not having enough time to myself, not eating the right things because I was tired. So I'd just go to sugary stuff. And, you know, it was impacting my mental health. And now I realized it was impacting my physical health as well. Uh-huh. So I went on a process of, of trying to learn exactly what I needed to do. Because I had many years had tried to lose weight, but not successfully. And I decided to put the same kind of like, um, well, scientific hat on that I did in learning sort of Western medicine and, and, and learning the sort of pharmaceutical side of things to lifestyle. So I, I sort of just threw myself at it, read plenty of literature, including um, sort of completing various extra diplomas. And I managed to lose 24 kilos. You know, I, wow. I, I reversed the fatty liver disease. And I've gone from being sort of a couch potato to, I don't really know how, but uh, sort of a long distance triathlete. So like that, that kind of sort of sums up the, the journey that I've gone from where I think people would have laughed at me if I even ran for the bus. And now I'm running because I want to, <laughs> like it's, it's a strange way. I still sometimes don't believe it. But that journey, that personal journey made me realize that I wanted to translate this for patients because I was hearing the patients doing the same things that I was doing for many years, making the same mistakes that I had made and and just being sucked in by lots of things that they see on social media or what people tell you down the pub. And, and mm-hmm. often they, they just set people up for failure. So I just, I just want to be able to get this message across from genuine evidence, genuine literature, um, and be able to support patients to lead healthier lives. So... I mean, it's obvious from what you're saying that it's not just about the positive physical effects of exercise, but also that you do in your active practice acknowledge the link between physical activity and well-being. So I guess, you know, I also wanted to comment that I I, I think I saw somewhere that you're a triathlete for Team GB 2023. So congratulations. Just wanted to say that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, we got the world champs in May. So uh, I've been working very, very hard. To, uh, to try to uh, do my best. I'm definitely nervous and not a lie. Absolutely amazing. So I guess going back to that idea of, you know, acknowledging the link between physical activity and well-being, what's been your relationship to mental health? Because you acknowledged your own journey there as well. But even in your practice, the types of patients that you, you see, you know, what's been your experiences there? Because primary care practitioners are at the forefront, after all. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the vast majority of um Mental care, mental health, and and well being that is managed by the incredible sort of staff within primary care uh, up and down the country, and we've seen in particular through the last two years it's sort of a, a sharpening of what we were already seeing pre COVID, which mm-hmm. is that people's lives are becoming more stressful, the people are feeling more uncertain about the future, and it's worsening either pre existing mental health difficulties or causing and exacerbating. Um, a number of people to struggle with things like low mood and anxiety. One of the things that I set up after the first lockdown, when we had sort of the rule of six, if you remember back to then, it was I I set up walking and jogging groups for patients and staff to go together in groups of six, uh, which um, we, we did through the backing of a mental health charity called Run Talk Run. And that's where people can just do a bit of exercise, be outdoors, be around nature, and also have that connection, not just with a healthcare professional that's with them during the run, but with the others that are there and the shared lived experience that there. And it, it grew. It grew from being little groups of six to now, you know, we're getting somewhere between 20 to 40 every week 
on a Monday evening outside the practice. They all congregate. You know, once I finish work in the evening, I, I go outside, they're there and they're ready to go for either a jog, walk. Um, and and it's it really helps me. It's definitely my highlight of the week. It gives me the motivation because I can I see people progressing. Like some of the patients I've known now for like two, three years coming to the group weekly and you just see how far they come. That's amazing because even just going to the idea that, you know, you can foster a lifestyle within somebody, even just taking that word at face value. But it sounds like you've created a community and that goes to that goes towards all the ideas of habit forming, right? Yeah. Because that's what it is, healthy activities to engage in, putting that sort of, I guess, evidence-based work into practice. That's from my end, that's amazing to hear. For sure. For sure. It's 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 a great way, you know, when when you try to find something that touches on a number of different areas. And that, that group, it may seem like a simple walking and jogging group, but, well, the connecting with nature, because we always go to places away from the roads, to be around trees, be around natural landscapes. You're surrounded by other people, and often other people with similar experiences with you, and it helps you not feel like you're the only one going through this and that, that, that you know, you're struggling alone. You've got movement. We know physical activity can be helpful for a number of mental health issues. And finally, you've got that, that sort of connection with your sort of healthcare professional. That's different to being in a consultation room. Um, of course. I, I always notice that the patients, when I'm with them out on a walk or on a job, they, the, the conversation is different. It's, uh-huh. I'd say it's less inhibited because there's something that happens when you're sort of walking or, or, or moving through a space that sort of just disinhibits you. Maybe it's because you're looking forward, so you're not having the eye contact and sort of sometimes the difficulty if you're feeling nervous or anxious around that. I just find people will open up and I've had really, really deep, meaningful consultations uh, with patients on the move, which have helped us sort of move forward when before we haven't really got to the bottom of what it is really that's, that they want to explore. Of course, because healthcare really does happen in the community. I know that's a, that's a saying and, you know, it's amazing to see that through the initiatives that you started, it almost seems like you've integrated your practice more so within the community you serve. And I guess that, shouldn't that be what all healthcare services aspire to really? Because then you reach people, you reach the people you want, you're out there walking with your crew and that makes it sound like you're a bit of a chain gang. But, you know, <laughs> it sounds cool. It sounds yeah, it cool. does, right? You can get, you can get like matching leather jackets and stuff. Um, so oh. isn't it, isn't it the same that, you know, you're out there walking with your crew and then perhaps other people in the community may see what you're doing and they may think, oh, I wonder what that is. And then all of a sudden they may see a poster somewhere and yeah. then they get engaged because it becomes normalized. So, I mean, that's what we should all, that's what all healthcare services should aspire to. I mean, given the yeah. time and resources. Yeah, yeah. And that's a whole other conversation, sure. right? And it's, it's about <laughs> thinking outside the box, isn't it? When I first mentioned yes. that I wanted to have sort of these kind of group consultations, these movement outside, um, you know, going on a job with patients, many of the, you know, my colleagues thought I was, I'd lost it. They thought that, you know, I, I hit my head and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm talking crazy talk, but you know, <laughs> now uh, many years down the line, it's, it's something that's become embedded. It's become part of the, the offering that, that we do. And, and I'm working hard with a number of charities to try and encourage other surgeries to take this up. And already we're starting to see a few, you know, even over the last year, I've got three or four, they're now doing a very similar thing. Amazing. Um, and the aim is to just facilitate that so that others can join. So I suppose this is a digital health podcast. So I was looking in a couple of places and even on your, so the CLMP website for your, for your trust. And it looks like you've launched 
you launched an app. Was that during the lockdown to sort of facilitate the online transition of your services? Precisely, yes. So we, I wouldn't say we were very sort of digitally savvy pre uh, around sort of 2020. Um, and it was by, by some kind of coincidence, sort of end of March, we were planning to launch sort of a new website with online mm-hmm. consultations. And thank God we were planning that because um, it so turned out that we had to rely really heavily on online consultations through, through well, the whole of COVID. And even now, so I was uh, tasked as sort, of, as sort of like the digital savvy person at the practice, uh, mm-hmm. out the partners. I was tasked with, with getting the website up to scratch, having it as a venue for us to be able to collect information from patients, patients to access us uh, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so we created a really simple, clean app for them to do that. And it really, really supported us in that first year. Like when we compared our online consult usage compared to other practices in South Warwickshire where we are based, we were like miles ahead. I think we had more than every other practice combined, um, you know, for those first 12 months because we really did a lot of work, not just in the design of the products, which I Mm -hmm. can't tell you how many hours I spent on that, (laughs) Um, but it was was from the whole team in how, because in order to get a digital product, to work, it needs to be kind of embedded in the processes of the practice. Not an additional thing that's on the side. You have to get your workflows to match up um, sort of two ways or the, or the other way around. And they did really well. Like I remember having every department, they were in charge of their area and, and helping design it. So therefore it fitted around how they wanted to work. And it also enabled us to really review a number of our workflows, which we wouldn't have done we would have just sort of ticked along just as you do day to day, but it made us improve a number of workflows just because we had this opportunity. Of course. And, you know, my sort of specialty area and key interest area is implementation science. And everything you've spoken to right there speaks to the core of implementation. You secured buy-in across your trust. You even got the people to develop what they wanted for themselves. And even thinking revising your existing care pathway is so key to making sure that it's not something nice to have. It's how you do medicine. Yeah. It's how you do mental health care. It's how you how you practice. That is so, so important. And in fact, you know, we've seen a lot of that in the work that we do. And one thing I thought was interesting, the, you know, the majority of people accessing your app are over the age of 60 plus, right? So in one of the studies that we've done, it was a sort of a naturalistic analysis of a large data set of about 20k people. Um, we found that our, you know, those in the older age groups, which was 65 plus in our study, they actually had really, really good outcomes in comparison to similar therapies, which was a self-help group in guided bibliotherapy. But they achieved superiority of outcome over uh, in comparison to the other groups. So it's really interesting how people say, oh, old people are not going to access these types of interventions. They don't have smartphones. They don't do this. They don't do that. I think that's such... That's that's almost like a, a false reality that I yeah, think yeah. we've accepted. You're right. I remember one of the first people that the patients that sort of told me about the app and sort of gave me some tips about things to change. He was, I think, he was 88, and like he just he brought out his fancy brain much better Amazing. than mine, and just went through the app and goes, "Oh, I noticed that this happens, and then this bug comes up on this bit," and I'm like, "Nice, <laughs> well done, well done." I'm going to write that down. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and you know, you're right. Like. I think it just has to be designed in a certain way, but when it's well designed, then no, for sure they can they can do very well and they can get the most out of it. Like this, it's nothing uh, uh, sort of against 
like sort of the, any kind of specific thing for older people can't access digital care. No, I think it's just that they will have certain preferences on how that digital care is presented, which to be honest, I think if, if you match it up for what their needs are, you're going to do very well for anyone in general because accessibility and ease of use, that's something that everyone you know, you should be able to make the most of, and we shouldn't rely on people working things out. So I think ease of use of a product when it comes around healthcare, that has to be number one. I totally because agree. If we think about mental health, you know, like a lot of these people struggle with motivation. They, they don't want an excuse not to continue. So you really have to make it as um, sort of simple uh, a process as possible. I definitely agree. And, you know, even from implementation studies that we've done, I suppose maybe my... You know, I'm speaking as somebody who's worked with clients before and I'm now a researcher and I get to have both the provider and the end user uh, exposure. But sometimes I think that maybe our predispositions or pre-existing biases as healthcare professionals or as healthcare researchers, perhaps, you know, that was one of the, the learnings that I took from one of the studies we did. Perhaps we are actually the problem. Mm-hmm. And by acknowledging that we're potentially the problem, you know, we want to provide the best care that we possibly can to all the patients, all the users, in our case, in, you know, Civic Club by Amwell, all the users that we, that come through our programs, our interventions, we want to provide the best care. But, you know, care is subjective. And yeah. how I go through, based on my background and, you know, my experience previous, I could experience care completely different to the next person. So I really feel like we need to be more open as healthcare professionals. But even to the idea that over the years, there's been more of a move towards, you know, human doctors, if yeah. for want of a better term, like I know even in some of the universities here in Ireland, a lot of those programs have been started up because going back to that whole idea of what you're doing as a, as a lifestyle GP, it's just so important to push that motivation and to be able to level with the user. So I guess there's, there's definitely parallels between product design and almost yeah. doing care. It's like listening to the person, meeting them where they are. Correct. Spot on. So... You know, NICE have recently come out with the early evaluations and, you know, DTAC, uh, digitally enabled therapies. So have you had much exposure to that, especially being on the primary care end? Yes, they, uh, definitely. Like, I think NICE has made a number of changes in particular to the guidance that came out in 2022. And it's really interesting to see and, and still try to understand where they were coming from with those changes and the kind of direction that they are heading yeah. in. Is that Kevin sort of quickly summarize sort of those changes for of the listener? Of course, because I mean, you know, the, the I guess the way I see it is that this explosion in products and new people coming to market, it's, you know, it needs to be regulated and it needs to be analyzed and it needs to be done so for the practitioners who don't need to do it. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So like the key sort of take homes from NICE's 2022 guidance was that they wanted to stratify the depression into just two groups. Before we had three groups. Uh, so now there's less severe and there's more severe. And that stratification is done on a PHQ9, so as a patient health questionnaire. No. Um, and straight off, like that's something that many primary care physicians weren't specifically doing all the time. And because during consultation, it can be quite time consuming to complete the PHQ-9 of course. within what's really tough 10 minutes. So often digital solutions can be really, um, really, really effective into not only getting a PHQ-9 at baseline, but okay. to do that regularly, because it is a really good tool to monitor um, response. The other key things was that they wanted 
patients to have more of a collaborative approach when selecting treatment plans. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, they wanted to try and de-emphasize the role of drug therapy specifically, because there are now more options available when it comes to management. And nice split it into two groups. We have the less severe and the more severe, obviously depending on PHQ-9, as we said. And in the less severe group, what they put right at the top, which they based on both sort of the clinical and cost effectiveness, was guided self-help, which included in that was digital absolution. So they put that right at the top. Of course. And if you think about what we were using up until now, which for the majority is, is antidepressants and specifically SSRIs, mm-hmm. that came way down the list. That was sort of number nine in sort of the, the order of what they felt was the most clinically and cost-effective um, option. So it's, it's a big shift there. And I think it's come from really kind of good evidence to suggest that you know, solutions like, for example, digital apps around um, mental health and, and embedded psychotherapy that they can be in there as well as uh, advice and information, they can be really, really useful tools for patients to get a lot of benefit from. And we just need to kind of learn to embed it in our practice because for so long, I think people feel comfortable with something when they've done it for many years, but medications aren't without the potential issues, without the potential side effects. And more and more now we're realizing that antidepressants are very difficult to come off from. You know, there's a lot of withdrawal symptoms around that. And because of it, NICE actually added it to the dependency forming medication. Despite it not being an addictive medication, it is so tricky to come off. They, they do register it as a dependency forming medication. <laughs> so it was really interesting to see that because that was the first time that NICE had to put guided self-help right at the top um, of the pile when it comes to sort of best management options in what's sort of a PHQ-9 less than 16, which is the vast majority of patients that we see in primary care. So when you think about the patients that you meet face-to-face every day, firstly in your role as a lifestyle GP, but for any other GP out there, where do you see, how do you see these early value assessments, the EVAs, impacting on the work that they do, or perhaps even allowing for more opportunities? What, what do you see as the, the future in that regard? I, I think they're extremely helpful. They're a tool that allows you to equip the patient with something right from the early onset. Because um, like one of the main issues at the moment is, for example, accessing IAPT is, is, is really difficult. And, and a lot of, of GPs will listen to this and think, yeah, it's great. I've got IAPT in my area, but the waiting list is, you know, six to nine months. So many go to antidepressants as that option because they want to be able to support the patient here and now. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, so this is that option where we can give them something really early on that doesn't have a waiting list that, that can support them. Um, and, and often having a framework and a structure is what a patient is looking for when otherwise life can seem quite chaotic and, and feel potentially hopeless. And, and so it's all about building in a plan and, and, and sharing that plan with the patient. And it very much makes part of that, having, having that included. It just gets, I guess, a key bit is getting into your practice of sort of doing it enough times that it starts to become embedded uh, because our behaviors definitely, we can sort of repeat the same things just because of we're course. used to it rather than uh, it's the best option. And anything new can always seem like a mountain, right? It's the same thing, even with engaging with physical exercise, mm. you know, it, and that speaks to the, you know, behind CVT, which is, our programs are based on CBT, but the idea that, you know, 
uh, behavioral activation. Like if you start doing it enough times and you start seeing results, you'll get the motivation and you'll get the the positive affect out of it. Correct. And I suppose that rings true for healthcare, right? Even referring like clinicians, once you start referring to these digital interventions, your patients provide you with that feedback because there's nothing better than like a there. If you want to reduce them to a data point, that's positive feedback coming back to you, which is data showing you in the real world that your treatment choices are working for your patients. I think it's absolutely amazing. And it's really empowering from a GP perspective as well. So thinking about how well would you think that a GP would be equipped in general practice to support somebody using these types of digital interventions? Would you see it, would you see it as a GP supporting somebody using it or something that they would maybe check in with the patient with how they're doing every once in a while? I think it could be used in a number of different ways. And I use um, so these, these types of digital apps in different methods, dependent on the patient. Um, for many, they prefer to sort of manage it themselves and just check in with me if they're having any difficulties. And if I'm happy from a risk assessment point of view, um, that you know, they are confident that they would contact me if anything worse and et cetera, then, then, then often I'll have a very sort of uh, distant approach from that. For many, it will be part of the management. So we will sort of set goals together based on sort of using um, that app or digital intervention as a framework, and we will sort of we will bring it into that consultation. Some patients I won't offer it, and so it, it really just depend on on what it is, what their preferences are, what I feel is going to be beneficial for them. But for the vast majority, I'll say they'll go into that middle category where we're going to be having it as a guided sort of structured element within. Mm-hmm the care that we're giving. And I feel a lot more confident because in between our consultations, they've got it to rely on. And I know that there's embedded within these, these tools, lots of safeguarding elements. There's lots of sort of prompts and support and information that they have even outside of our consultations. So it, it feels like it's kind of like pre-COVID when we didn't have any of the sort of digital SMS and all the sort of video consultation, mm-hmm. et cetera. It feels like we're after that now, in the same way with, with mental health, sort of digital apps, we now have a tool that has kind of supercharged our consultation where it's no longer just going to be, let's say, two weekly or four weekly appointments and such is based. We've got something that we can now fill in those gaps so the patient can get on with, with doing, let's say, some homework or whatever you want to call it. Of so course. therefore, when you have the next appointment, you can discuss that. You specifically got say, okay, so how was that element of it? How was that section? Um, and so the, I guess it, it keeps the patient engaged with the treatment plan. Of course. And, you know, once again, care happens in the community. Care happens in between. So yeah. that's where the magic happens in between when you see a patient maybe in January versus your next check-in, maybe February, start of March. You know, having these tools, they're so important. And even in our own programs, we have sort of activity scheduling. And now I'm just thinking to your use case and how you run the walking groups. And I think those are the sorts of things that really create an embedded digital solution. You know, you could even as the GP schedule with them there in session that, okay, so we're going to go to your activity scheduling app and we're going to start to put in the dates of the walking groups. And we're going to talk about why you may have missed them. Like, is it is it the case that you didn't have the motivation? Is it the case that it was just life happens, which is for every, you know, digital apps are supposed to be care on demand on the patient's own terms. Mm. So that's totally great as well. But I just see such an integrated way to use it. And 
you know, I often think that sometimes GPs, you know, they really are the cold front. And I don't think that they get the appreciation that they deserve, especially during COVID and that crazy, crazy onslaught that was just coming at them repeatedly. God, yeah. So how do you think that the NHS can support GPs in using these types of interventions? Because you mentioned, you know, management setting goals, but we know even from our own research in Silvercloud that sometimes that there can be a disconnect between the goals that are set at the top of a service and the goals that are set for, that then translate down to GPs on the ground. Because if you start saying to a GP, um, okay, 50% of any depression or anxiety case that comes through the door, we need to give them app A or we need to give them treatment option A. So, you know, that's typical kind of healthcare as a business, right? It doesn't work in, in the real world because everyone coming through your door is different. So how, from an NHS perspective, from a management perspective, even for us as intervention developers, you know, who work with GPs, who work with IAP services, how do we empower and support GPs to use these types of tools? That's a really good question, because I'd say, like, in healthcare in general, primary care is actually probably pretty good at taking on new digital solutions. When you compare us to the sort of secondary care colleagues, we are miles ahead. They often comment on, you know, really kind of how far we are. Um, but within the consultation, sometimes habit can occur and, and trying to break those habits and build in new uh, sort of tools within that can take time. Now, I say that probably the most effective method is GPs never like recommending or using anything that they don't know really well. Because what they don't want to have is, let's say, you know, I want to recommend product X. And if the patient then asks me questions that I don't know, you don't want to come across as if you sort of flippantly advise them on something that you don't really know the ins and outs of uh, to be able to answer the patient's questions. And, but then there lies the problem because they're so busy and they're constantly working, they don't have time that much, unfortunately, yeah. for that professional yeah. development. So it's about trying to tool them up in as sort of quick and effective way as to what does this app offer. Maybe specifically using case studies, so patient mm-hmm. case studies where they're from the voice and, and they say what they liked, didn't like, what worked, what didn't. Um, yeah. So really honest kind of case reviews rather than just specific, you know, ones that have been pulled out. And that will help because I think for the vast majority of GPs, once they realize just how useful these apps can be, they make your day easier without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and patients, from my experience, I'm sure you've probably got the data, but from my experience, they really like it. They, they, they really yeah. enjoy um, using these apps. And often they'll use it long after they've, they've finished consultations Indeed. with me. Um, and so it's just about trying to show them the evidence in a sort of patient specific way, rather than graphs and numbers. Cause we're always a little dubious about just seeing, you know, improvements. Of course they can be fogged, like it's, they can totally be fogged. Exactly. You just want to hear the, 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 the sort of how it's coming across, what patients are generally saying about it. And then they, you need a way of kind of visually, probably rather than in prose, visually showing them in like a five, 10 minute video, kind of pretty much what is this app about, you know? What are the common questions that patients are probably going to ask? And then they'll feel confident. It's, it's, it's the same way that, for example, Accurix and that sort of SMS messaging service, yes. it's done very well because they have lots of videos online that show you how to do everything. So whenever you're stuck and go, oh, how do I do that? You just watch a video, shows you, and then that's it. Within three minutes, you feel like you've mastered it. 
So I think that's the key element here is that you need to, to be concise, sure, and where possible visual. Because the amount of emails that we get, we don't want to read another sort of... Um, Complete burnout in that regard, right? Oh, yeah, totally. You just click delete now because you just can't, you know, you can't engage with it because you, you have to read the patient notes. You have to read the letters from the hospital. So after a while, you, there's only so much you can absorb reading. Of course. So if it can be done in a concise, visual way with patient experiences in it, then no, yeah, GPs will will take on board. And I think that's really interesting, just based on what you're saying, you know, having concise information, because oftentimes, you know, our solution is used within IAPT, it's used within hospital systems in the US, and people often think that, oh gosh, I need to have like X number of diplomas done. I need to, you know, go back and retrain as a psychiatrist. I need to do all of these things and able to support somebody through, you know, a digital intervention that's based on, you know, so internet delivered CBT, for example, but like the literature widely states, and I guess the, what it widely states that even trainees associated with yeah. charities, you know, people who aren't, don't have any formal psychological training, but who have basic intervention training in the product that they're delivering, they can achieve, they can achieve almost equivalent outcome to a trained supporter. And I guess that's the interesting thing about internet delivered CBT, because it's not it's not designed explicitly for those super acute uh, cases because I think maybe schizophrenia or intense trauma, trauma or bipolar, but there are two digital tools available. However, for, you know, direct intervention in, in periods where, you know, low mood is elevated or, uh, you know, anxiety symptoms are elevated, you can achieve pretty decent outcome by acting like, a, as I like to term it, when I give trainings to, to people and using the intervention, I call it sort of like a therapeutic cheerleader. Yep. You know, your goal isn't to engage in endless therapeutic discussion. It's to facilitate somebody's access to evidence-based tools, evidence-based content, and then let that content and those tools do the job. And then you can act as a soundboard for that patient coming towards you like, yeah, you know, I've done a thoughts, feelings, behavior cycle myself, myself as a practitioner, as a GP, and I found that difficult, even empathizing yeah. with somebody at that yeah. level can enforce them to go back. And I think it's just really, I think we're on the same page, Hussein. Yeah, I no, definitely, definitely think we're on the same page. Definitely. And and many patients have commented to me that what they like about it is, A, the, it's not something that just stops. Um, many of them get nervous about, because I totally understand why in psychotherapy they have to have distinct, let's say 12 weeks, eight weeks, whatever. Yeah, But for many, they've struggled with difficulties and relapsing depression for years. So mm -hmm. they, they, they want something that's there so they can tap into um, sort of regularly. It's kind of like a maintenance thing. Many of them will use it long after we've sort of termed that they are now sort of depression resolved. Because as we know, mental health isn't something that sort of comes and goes. It's something we should work on and, well, and protect at all times. And another thing they say is sometimes they feel it's difficult to always connect with the therapist and with how our lives are nowadays and sort of how busy and hectic they can be, sort of building that in can be stressful in of itself, trying to make sure that you attend it and work doesn't have a problem with it. And so being able to do these things when you want, whether it's Tuesday in the evening or, you know, or, or, or Saturday in the morning, that has one bit of pressure that they don't need to worry about scheduling in these kind of sessions where they can discuss, you know, feeling sports behaviors. So of course, I think the key here is that it's not trying to replace your classical face-to-face -face psychotherapy, mm -hmm. but it's, it's offering an option that doesn't have a waiting list that they can use whenever they want. 
that they don't have to worry about therapist patient connection and 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 sort of how that works and so this is just a fantastic tool because a lot of people come to me and say oh they're only using this because we can't get into IAPT for eight months but if I'm being honest even if IAPT was a week I'd still be offering it to patients and as you exactly. say in IAPT they offer it as well you know it's it's another tool in the armory rather than some kind of, you know, cheaper replacement. It's not that in the slightest. Exactly. And I think that's really how it needs to be conceptualized. It's not a cheapening of care. These are interventions that are proven through randomized control trials and even to get to the point of being recommended by NYSA, you know, for yep. use in treatment. You do need to have a solid standard of evidence. We've talked about a bunch of facilitators, right? How GPs are really at the front and they're really forward about trying new things. But what, in your view, are the biggest barriers and facilitators associated with digital mental health support? I guess, one, as a GP in regular practice, but two, for someone like you who's a lifestyle GP. Yeah. Okay, so I'd say one is definitely time. Time to get equipped and comfortable trying something different. Um, you know, we've seen not just in, let's say, the take-up of digital solutions, but even the take-up of new sort of classes of drugs and new management plans, it's been slower than it has been previous because, simply put, people don't have as much time to continually professionally develop. The other element is sort of patient perception, which we're going to have to work hard to encourage. I remember, like, I, I'm, I'm on a TV show called Steph's Pack Lunch, and one of the um, items that we discussed. We always discuss topical items as in the news. And one of them was on digital health, mental health app solutions. And it was interesting to hear what was coming from the audience. And many felt that this was sort of a, you know, cheaper option, that it's because we don't have enough staff. And um, it's, it's, you know, I think that there is normally a lot of negativity when it comes out about yeah. various energy stories. So people always assume that Everything that's coming out must be because things are boring the bar. You know, I did my best to, to encourage them. And, I, and you could see that for many of, of the patients in the audience, they, they they understood they were starting to get it. But for many, they still were very, very sort of, of nervous. Course. And because of that, certain healthcare professionals may worry about bringing this as an option through fear of the patient thinking, oh, they're just bobbing me off. You know, they're yeah. giving me some, you know, a link to this app and they just want me to get out the door. Uh, when it's many, many miles from the truth. So it's going to be a bit of a patient perception, uh, clinician education, and and time. Because I, I, the best thing that I think is going to come out of it is when the patients that do get a lot of benefit from it, they tell their family, they tell their friends. And that's going to be probably the best way of changing both the clinician when they hear that feedback and the public when they sort of start to see that Actually, these are really, really helpful tools. People love reading self-help books. They love listening yeah. to podcasts about this thing. Well, this is an app designed to guide you through that kind of evidence-based information. So I think, I think it, it, in a matter of time, we're going to see both of those kind of two main stumbling blocks, those hurdles uh, being overcome. And I think I've said this a couple of times in this podcast so far, but, you know, that's really reassuring for me because we actually have a study in review right now that's looking at the the implementation of internet-delivered CBT in the IAP setting. And we interviewed a bunch of patients. We interviewed a bunch of people working in IAP services and also people uh, on our end working in customer-facing roles because it's kind of that idea of the triangle coming together. 
yeah. to for successful implementation. And everything you've just said there, time, patient perspective, and even clinician buy-in, so, so important. And oftentimes I feel like some people think of digital, exactly as you said, you know, digital so solutions can be almost a cheapening of care. If I buy it, it'll work. And this is great. But then it doesn't happen. And then patients get bad experiences. And then clinicians are seeing my patients are having bad experiences. So, of course, it must be the case that the intervention is bad. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, everything you said, it speaks to my dear old research heart. That implementation and, you know, considered and careful measured implementation is so key with all of this going forward, because it's all well and good with NICE recommending it as a guide, you know, putting it in a guideline and recommending it. But it's that evidence to practice point yep. that is so, so important, I feel. Very important. And, and it's just like any tool. It's only as good as how you've prepared it. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of studies when it comes to behavioral science on, you know, w when you are offering an intervention, if the patient doesn't feel like you're confident about it or knowledgeable about it or think that it's going to work, then it probably won't work. Um, in the same way that often when we, when you sort of, how you talk about side effects and issues is more likely to potentially cause it or not cause it. So I think we have to realize we have an important part to play when we do offer treatment options. Really important that we are positive, motivated, and encouraging. Because no matter what option that is, it doesn't have to be a digital mental health solution. It can be anything. Exactly. It makes a huge difference. I think some people forget that, that it makes a huge difference in the likelihood of success, really just based on behavioral science. And it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Just on a logical set le of course, level. Yeah. So my last question, uh, and coming out of the serious stuff, what's your wellness journey going to look like on your way to competing as a triathlete? Oh, very, very interesting question. So for me... Like the, the event in Ibiza is, a lot of people think it's a destination and it's where you should always focus your attention on. But the reason I really love triathlon is not because of the results or winning, but it's the, the lifestyle that it embeds in you in the sense that you need to get organized. You need to often throughout the week push beyond your comfort zone get used to feeling uncomfortable exactly. and it helps focus you on the food you eat on the time you spend to recover. And that's why I love it so much. So for me, it's a vital part of my wellness. And yeah. also I really encourage everyone that's listening that if you find something like that, whether it be powerlifting, whether it be, I don't know, art, whatever it is, it's so vital to get something that you can work on that's yours. Exactly. And you can improve because it's ego enhancing. Really simply put, it's ego enhancing. And so when I'm, let's say this morning, I, I, I went on a run, lovely trail run. It was in the rain, lots of mud, but it was fantastic. And it just sets you up for the day of work because you've just been able to tick that off and you get that feel good feeling that you've done it. So I'd really recommend sort of embedding some form of sort of skill or hobby uh, into your lifestyle because it will help that that sort of wellness journey because wellness isn't a destination it's that mindset exactly it's that the you journey. go about day to day Hussein I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation well, thank you Dad. thank you to my guest today Dr Hussein Al-Zubaidi it's been so fascinating to hear how he has used technology and fitness to make positive impacts felt within the local community and wider afield 
If you want to know about any of the services that CiverCloud by Amwell offers in providing support for mental health, you can find all details on our website. You can also hear more conversations surrounding digital mental health and listen back to all the previous episodes of CV Talks Online. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode in this series, please rate and review CV Talks so we can help others discover it too. I'll be back next time looking at another way in which digital technologies are involved in mental health. Goodbye.